the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program is pre-recorded. This is the Paul George Real Estate Show with your host, Paul George. Sponsored by the Paul George Real Estate Group. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers, and not necessarily those of Salem Media Group, staff, management, or advertisers. And now, here's your host, Paul George. Great. Welcome to the Paul George Real Estate Show. I better get some water here. Welcome to the Paul George Real Estate Show. I'm your host, Paul George. I am a 30-year-plus real estate agent in the Columbus area. I was born and raised here, so I've been doing real estate for half my life, I think. So uh, if you need help building, buying, selling a home, uh, get a hold of me. Anyway, today we are going to talk about an area of real estate that is starting to become part of the decision-making of buying a home and where to buy a home and how to buy a home and things like that. Um, when buyers start their search, they usually search by, okay, I have a need. I need more bedrooms or I need more space or uh, I need to size down or something like that. So those things are easy for me to kind of punch into a computer or put on a a, a checklist or things like that. One of the things that's been coming up and not necessarily in a great way is uh, homeowners associations. Um, people are talking about, okay, what kind of homeowners association do they have? It's not big yet, but when you are sizing down um, and somebody's going into a condominium complex, one of the questions I get is, how's the HOA? And, you know, basically all I can tell them is, here's some of the financials, here's some of this and that. But what they really want to know is, how strict are they? How stringent are they? How. Um, how tough are they on putting up, uh, doing certain things that I've been used to all my life and nobody's cared. But uh, that's something that's a little different, and we're going to uh, talk about that a little bit. Um, we're going to talk about the love-hate relationships we have with HOAs. There's a lot, a lot of good things, and there's a lot, a lot of bad things. And I have firsthand knowledge of that because I served on a board of my homeowners association for six years and four years as president. But uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, what I'd like to do in this first segment, like I always do, is kind of talk about what's going on in the real estate market. Um, we're going into fall, and fall is traditionally a slower time of the year for selling homes. Um, for the last couple of years, though, because of the housing shortage, the low interest rates, the multiple offers and things like that, we didn't really have a whole lot of uh, seasonality, so to speak. We had a lot more of, hey, if I get a chance to get a home, I don't care if it's in the middle of the school year or, um, you know, what's going on. But uh, the other part of it was uh, the FOMO thing where they're scared to death they're not going to get something. So it didn't matter if they were moving at Christmas or moving at Thanksgiving. Um, this year I'm getting the feeling that people are taking a breath. Um, the interest rate helps with that. The um, um just the weather itself kind of puts a little damper on things for a lot of people, and they're just not as motivated. You know, when you got an 8% interest rate and you're you're coming out of a 3 or 4 or 5% interest rate, it's a little bit different. The other part of that, of course, is the budget. Um, you know, if you were looking at a house, you know, last year at this time, uh, there's probably, gosh, $1,000 more in your house payment for the exact same house. It's actually a little bit more than that because not only did the interest rates go up, but the house price of the house has risen. So even though things have slowed down, it has not slowed down the pricing of houses. It's just slowed down the kind of um, what's going on um, price-wise with the houses. Uh, that hasn't slowed down, but like I said, the interest rates have slowed it, slowed the amount of people. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, we just got all the new statistics from last month, and one of the interesting things that came up that gives buyers a little bit of hope is that for from 
January through September or so, houses were still selling at list price or more, meaning that if a house was priced at $100,000, it was going for at least 100000 Starting in September, uh, house prices actually were selling under what they were asking. Now, it's 98% of asking price, but uh, it's a little bit different. The other part of that, too, is that instead of houses selling at a weekend, the average was about 16 days, and now it's about 24 or so. So uh, I just thought I'd give you that kind of update to say if you're a buyer and you're thinking about it, you are one of many that are kind of sitting on the sidelines waiting. But if that special situation comes up, um, we are they're still jumping at it because there's still some that are selling in the weekend. Um, I am going to an auction for a client on Sunday, and there's a house right beside it that came up for sale. We said, great, it's got a comparable, and it sold in a day. And it was in the $300,000 range. It was three twenty-five, and I guarantee that sold for more than asking because it sold in a day. But if anything's on for more than a week, which I tell my buyers, then you have some negotiating room. Uh, as long as the sellers have some realistic opinions of what's going on, then uh, if it's priced at something, you're not going to get that usually uh, within the first uh, after the first weekend, I guess to say. So, with that being said. Um, we're going to get into talking about homeowners associations. Today, my guest is an attorney. He represents, and his firm represents only, if I remember right, only homeowners associations. So he's got very specialized knowledge. And I might as well introduce him now, and when we come back, we'll start getting into some questions. Um, my guest is Jeff Kamen of Kamen Cusimano. Um, it's a firm that happens to be right here in this same building as the studio is. So he didn't have too far to come over here. So Jeff, why don't you introduce yourself and tell me what you do and tell me a little bit about yourself. Oh, no, thanks, Paul, for having me here today. It, it's great to be with you. I know in our business and as an attorney, we always so much appreciate education. And one of the things I've always really valued about you and what you do is how much you educate people. And it's so great for all the listeners today to even just be soaking this in because when you talk about homes and we talk about these things in numbers and stats and stuff like that, but at the end of the day, it's their house. Yep. And it's not just where they live, but it's probably the biggest investment that they're ever going to make in their life. And so the more information that people have, the more prepared that they are going into that process, the better off that they'll be and the better the experience hopefully will be for them over the short in the long term. And so that's really why... I like to think our job is all we do is represent community associations. I like to think our job is to try to maximize unity in our communities well, and that's a good way to put it. educate yeah. our board members who are governing these communities as well as the owners and neighbors around them. And so we try to further that educational mission. All right. Well, Jeff, when we come back, we'll start delving into a little more of um, what you actually do and then in the second half, we'll probably talk about some specific fun things that you guys do as well. Um, before we uh, get into the break, I just wanted to remind you to get us give us a good follow on Facebook um, at the Paul George Group. And you can also follow us on Twitter at the Paul George Show. We'll be right back. Navigating the complexities of the current real estate market can be a daunting task. Fortunately, you have a trusted ally, the Paul George Group of Keller Williams Greater Columbus Realty. From the moment you start your journey, the Paul George Group with over 30 years of experience will be right beside you, guiding you through every step of the process, whether it's finding the perfect home or building, skillfully negotiating on your behalf, working with lenders, managing inspections, or handling title matters, their expertise ensures your best interests are always at heart. Don't hesitate to take the first step towards your real estate goals. Reach out to the Paul George Group for a no-obligation consultation. Call 614-570-2853. That's 614-570-2853. Or email paul at paulgeorgerealestate.com. When it comes to making informed decisions in the real estate world, trust the Paul George Group to lead the way. Visit the Paul George Real Estate Group at paulgeorgerealestate.com. That's paulgeorgerealestate.com. Now back to your host, Paul George. Welcome back to the Paul George Real Estate Show. Uh, again, I'm your guest, Paul George. I am here with my guest, Jeff Kamen. Um, 
He's an attorney who represents homeowners associations in the area. Um, before I talk to Jeff, I just want to remind you again that uh, when this show is over, this turns into a podcast. If you have an Apple phone or um, if you are on Spotify or Google Play or iHeartMedia, any of the uh, stations that do uh, podcasts, you can find us. Just uh, search for the Paul George Real Estate Show and you can subscribe and share it with your friends. We have all kinds of interesting subjects and, uh, you know, Jeff is just one of the many that people ask me about at homeowners associations. We've had the auditors on. Um, we've had lenders on. We've had home inspectors. So go through the uh, list and find one that uh, tickles your fancy or is important to you and download it and take a listen to it. So as I said, my guest is somebody I met when I served uh, on my board at my association. Uh, they represented our association and uh, we had some interesting conversations. Um, I served during COVID, so that brought its own unique circumstances as well. Um, but Jeff was a nice steadying force. But, uh, you know, his biggest job is pretty much to educate us as well as enforce what is already recorded. You know, we are governed by certain documents. And those are some of the questions that I'm going to ask him how that happens and that type of thing. So. Jeff, uh, I started to introduce you. Tell me a little bit more about yourself and more about your firm, um, uh, a little more deeper. How many people are on staff? How many you don't I don't think you just represent people in Columbus. You have different associations everywhere. Yeah, all throughout Ohio and northern Kentucky. All we do is represent community associations, and there's a lot of different types of them. There's the HOA type thing that you typically think of in normal suburbia. There's condominium associations, there's planned unit developments like PUDs, there's master associations. We re represent bodominiums and storage aminiums, and so there's a lot of different ways to structure real estate these days, but, that, but that's all we do. And we have, I think, 23 attorneys now among all of our offices oh, gotcha. that all we do is that. And even within community association law, it's amazing that we have to have attorneys that focus their practice in certain areas. So maybe they just help people enforce the rules or they help reviewing contracts or doing governing document amendments, things of that nature. So just a lot of different facets of it. Let's just cut right to the chase of why, give me your opinion on why do you think there's such a, a an adversarial relationship between HOAs and the actual people they represent? Uh, there's always a negative connotation. It seems like to HOAs, just like I kind of mentioned in my, People are searching out, wanting to know about them. What What do you think is the reason behind that? Well, first, I think it's a minority position, not a majority position. And I say that because there's a national trade institute called the Community Associations Institute, and they've done a number of surveys and things of that nature. And a couple of years ago, they did a major one, and over 85% of residents and community associations throughout the United States were happy with their association. Over 90% actually thought that it supported and promoted property values. And so the super majority of people seem to be really happy with their communities. We just often have a vocal minority who gets really upset with it. And when you think about it, that's often the case in a lot of things we deal with. You know, I mean, you and I, Paul, both drove here today and we made it. So we didn't really think about the roads, right? You know, like the road got us here. But gosh darn it, if ODOT had a road under construction and it took us a while or we hit a big pothole and now we need to get a new tire, we're going to be really mad at ODOT. And so sometimes people will come into those confrontational type circumstances or they just they have an encounter that was something other than the normal and what was expected. And that's oftentimes where that negativity comes from. But again, I think that's a minority position. Well, and I couldn't agree more because it seemed like uh, in in my experience, it was the same people over and over again. Um, you know, we'd have to hold an annual meeting. It's the same people that come over and they have the same thing. But, you know, ours was a, a 1,500 person subdivision. And when you have four or five people show up, I remember that's one of the things you said. When you only got four or five people showing up to your annual business meeting, you're doing okay. It's when you have that hundred people that, you know, carry the torches and things like that. We've never had that. So I guess I should be careful as to uh, what I wish for sometimes. Well, and you think that exists everywhere. I mean, just over the last couple of years, nobody ever went to school board meetings. Yeah. 
And now they do like that's a thing. And so when people feel like what they care about, what they feel passionately about is at stake, they're more likely to be involved. And that's where it just it goes back to their people's homes and they feel passionately about it. And so sometimes they have passionate feelings, which is OK. Yep. <laughs> Taking a step back, let's go back to maybe you can give me a general idea of how homeowners associations get started. Where does it originate from? Is it from the beginning when it's built up is a condominium, the association there? Um, what gives anybody the right to start a homeowners association? And uh, I guess, take it from there. It's probably not so much a right these days as a requirement. I mean, By... government, okay. Um, planning and zoning, has really taken off the last 20 or 30 years to almost require associations in most residential contexts. That happens for a couple of reasons. First, density, right? So when we talk about high dense areas where lots of people are living next to each other or on top of each other, that almost always today has to get structured like a condominium where people own not just their unit, but they own airspace and an undivided percentage of interest in the common elements. That can also, though, be the case in suburbia and HOAs, where we have homes that are very close to each other. They're not acres apart as they would be out in, in the country. And so for that reason, oftentimes cities require the existence of, of HOAs. So, too, Another huge reason for that is the preeminence of green space requirements in developments. Most cities today say to a developer, if you're going to build all this, you're going to take this nice, beautiful cornfield and turn it into suburbia. You can do that, but we want to preserve a portion of it. So some of it has to be green space, that it's a park or it's just open, no build zones, preservation zones, things of that nature. Somebody, though, almost always still has to maintain that property. Somebody's still got to cut the grass. And that somebody's not just usually one property owner because it benefits theoretically everybody in that community. And so for that reason, associations are often started, again, because of the government at the very beginning saying, we're requiring this green space. And so we need to build a structure afterwards to maintain it. So who the starting documents for a subdivision or something like that, is that part of the zoning to get that approved or, and <clears throat> is that something you guys do or do you just take, here's a boilerplate from everywhere and you go from there? It's certainly something that starts with planning and zoning. Okay. And it's a process that PNZ works with the developers and the developers attorneys about creating these documents. And so they will put all of those together. They often get approved by the city but really, it's the developer and, and the developer's attorney who prepare all that. That's not generally something we get involved with because we only represent associations after they turn over from the developer. And so we represent the communities. And so just that whole development process is not one that we're regularly engaged with. So so we have the initial documents. Somebody in, you know, I'm I'm coming from a housing background and I know – when I thought of HOAs, I always thought they only are for condominiums because they have more, uh, you know, uh, common areas and things like that. But now it's pretty much every subdivision has those as well, too. Um, when you have that and there's something that goes wrong with it, when I say goes wrong, somebody violates something within the documents in there. What gives the HOA the authority to say that, hey, you need to remove this or you need to fix this? What is it's not like it's a court of law or anything like that. So what gives them the authority to do so? I'm going to give you a lawyer answer. It depends. Uh -huh. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, that's, uh, that's a good real estate answer, too, by the way. It uh, is. How much is your health worth? It depends. It's yeah. a solid maybe. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so uh, it comes from other places. In condominiums, for example, state law is very significant. Condominium organizational documents all are relatively consistent on this matter that condominiums have a lot of authority. In suburban HOAs, that's where the authority really actually is very dependent on the governing documents. So some associations have way more authority than others do. And that just goes not from an enforcement perspective, but also perhaps even initial approval perspective. In some communities you move into, you might have to get the paint color approved before you change the color of the house. In other communities, you may not. 
And so it first goes to what is the community there for in the first place? Do we provide architectural control, for example? And if the answer to that is yes, then what are the enforcement remedies that the association has? Uh, again, uh, we're talking with Jeff Kamen, Kamen Cusimano, uh, on the Paul George Real Estate Show. And again, um, I mentioned Jeff's offices right across the street, right across the street, right across the walkway. Um, how often do you come into the office as compared to, you know, you came to a couple of our meetings how often are you guys involved in actually going to the meetings? I like to think we're second shift lawyers yeah. because all, all, the time. all of our clients uh, tend to meet on the evenings and on weekends. And so tonight I will be heading after this to go to a board meeting and talking to a board about their issues. Our attorneys almost every night of the week and, and most weekends are out either at board meetings or annual meetings uh, helping communities try to maximize their potential. Yeah, that's the same with us real estate agents. We work when people don't work. That's right. um, and that's kind of the same thing you have to do. Um, when you talk about these documents that get started, what is the general, you know, I always talk about deeds and covenants and things like that. What's that have, what's all the different things that need to go into something that an association looks at? Is an association the one who does the covenants, um, and again, I don't know if I'm getting mixed up in semantics with bylaws and covenants and things like that. What are the things that make it an HOA? There's usually two organizational documents. The first one that you call the covenants, it's often called a declaration. And it's usually a declaration of like covenants or conditions. It'll say it's a declaration of condominium ownership. And what that is, is it's declaring that this set of property, this group of property is restricted by all of the provisions in this document. And so this is the thing that has to do with the land. It talks about what you can and can't do, the types of things that are permitted or prohibited. If you can't have pets, maintenance responsibilities, insurance responsibilities, the fact that you might have to pay, all of those things are found in the declaration or the, the covenants as, as you describe them. The second document, which is often overlooked, but equally important is called the bylaws. Almost all of these communities, while they're neighborhoods and they're communities, they're also nonprofit organizations. They're corporations. We're not here to make money. We certainly care about money and property values, but we're not here to make money. So we're nonprofits. And so just like every other corporation out there, we have a set of bylaws or code of regulations that talks about the corporate procedures when the annual meeting has to be. Um, the board number, what the board powers and responsibilities are, indemnification. All of those important provisions related to the corporation are in the bylaws. That was kind of leading into my next question is give me a general structure then of a homeowners association from, you know, I sell a lot of new construction and the HOA is usually governed by the builder or the developer until there's a certain amount of people there. Kind of give me this a general structure of how that would work. Who's on the board? How can they be on the board? Who's uh, represented uh, when and where, those kind of things. Just give me a general, because I know they're all different, but give me a general idea of how they might be set up. In a condominium, it's very structured. The state law has certain thresholds that are set, and when those thresholds that are set for units being sold, a certain percentage or number of seats on the board have to get turned over to the owners. Typically, once 75% of a condominium is sold or five years passes, that's when control of the association usually turns over to the ownership. That's in a condo. HOAs don't have that rigid statutory structure. And so oftentimes in HOAs, believe it or not, developers can usually hold on to control until they sell the last lot. It really depends on how they set up those initial corporate documents as to who has control and when it turns over. So it can be a while. And we see most developers do that. In HOAs, they like to hold on to control until they're gone. And in my experience, it's not been a bad thing because of they have the resources to to get people to do the common areas. They have the resources to. But again, it's kind of like the homeowners, they have nothing else to do but complain about, you know, they said they were going to get the lights in and the entrance and they still haven't gotten them yet. So I don't know what motivation they have to actually follow through on things. And that's why I see some of the owners 
get upset with them because of that. And they have their reasons. Um, but as a general I, a rule, let's say we've got a 100-house subdivision. And what would be the basic structure? How many uh, president, secretary, at-large people? I don't know. How does Give me a general structure of what that might look like. In the 100 100- home example that you talked about, typically there's going to be a board of three or five people. And those people, assuming the developer's not involved anymore, are going to get elected at an annual meeting by their fellow owners. So all of the owners within a community are almost like the shareholders of a corporation. And they go to the annual meeting every year, just like shareholders do in publicly traded corporations. And they elect a board of directors to govern them on their behalf. So they elect those three people, and then those three people elect who the officers are, president, secretary, treasurer, that type of thing. And when you say treasurer and things like that, is there oversight or is it governed by the documents of, like, who would sign for this? Or I remember I had to sign um, uh, tax returns as a president, and I was like, am I supposed to be doing this or not? You were signing your life away. Yeah, you just apparently. didn't know it. So. <laughs> So as we when we come back, uh, you, we went through some general information on homeowners associations. I'm going to come back and hit you with some real specific ideas and thoughts that uh, seem to come up in just about every association. So when we come back, before we come back, um, again, follow us on Twitter at Paul George Real Estate and email me your questions at PaulGeorgeRealEstate.com. Submit your questions for the show to Paul at PaulGeorgeRealEstate.com. That's Paul at PaulGeorgeRealEstate.com. Now back to your host, Paul George. Welcome back to the Paul George Real Estate Show. Again, I'm your host, Paul George, and we were here with Jeff Kamen talking about uh, homeowners associations and some of the ups and downs and different things that they do. Um Jeff, before we get into uh, more about HOAs, I like to try to get to know some of my guests on a little different level. Hmm. Um, there's a couple questions I like asking, and people look at me like, oh, okay, so. Nobody really wants to get to know the lawyer. And I know. Well, that's I why know. i got to get a, you out yeah, of that. Okay, right. You know, I don't want people to kind of uh, pigeonhole you into being that stodgy <sighs> little lawyer that's going to, you know, do this and that. First of all, do you have a family? I do. Well, not a that you want to talk about? <laughs> I'll talk about that. I'm not sure that. they'll admit to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've been married for a long time and uh, I'm married to actually another one of our attorneys oh. who works in our office. My wife, Caitlin, is one of our attorneys. She writes a lot of our, our governing document amendments and, and leads our amendments department, which is kind of neat. We have a lot of family connections within our law firm. My dad started this firm 40 some years ago. Uh, my partner, our managing partner, Jay Cusimano, his wife is an attorney who works here. And we have uh, two brothers who are attorneys that work here. My partner, Nick, and his brother, Andy, are both attorneys. And so uh, the law sometimes has a little bit of a family connection. But I think that's especially true in our business just because we're dealing with neighborhoods and communities. And so that concept of family is is just a super important thing to us that, that permeates everything we it do. It gives you some good credibility there. It does. It does. Hey, quick question. Well, not a quick question. Here's my question that uh, I think people get to know you a little differently. If you could learn some other skill other than lawyering, um, if you could learn something instantly, what skill or what kind of thing would you like to learn that you didn't have to do a lifetime of learning on it? If you could just learn it instantly. Hmm. I would like to learn how to make people feel at ease. Hmm. Hmm. It's kind of a, one of those. Yeah. I can I'd love to be able to do that too. Hey, relax. Well, that's just it. I mean, and that's where so often when we're talking to people, they're very worried about the situation. Yeah. Right. And especially when you're dealing with your homes, you're super concerned. It's your house. It's where you're raising your family. It's your biggest investment. It's something that's happened to it. And you're concerned. More often than not, I know it's going to be okay. Yeah. Right? We can get through this, and we will get through it. It's just how I wish I could magically ease people's concerns from go, that they'll just know that right off the bat. Okay. Well, that's that's kind of work-related. Let's try something that's a little less work-related, I guess. Um, let's say you and your wife are downtown Columbus, and there's this uh, karaoke bar down there. 
and you guys are walking around and you hop into this karaoke bar and she talks you into, hey, get up there. What kind of song would you pick? Well, since I'm on the Paul George show, I uh, think I'd have to sing the Beatles. Good answer. Right? Look at that. Uh-huh. So you'd pick a Beatles song and it, everybody knows so you wouldn't feel so alone i would yeah. but my wife can't stand the beatles for, oh, so gosh. there's a lot of things wrong with her <laughs> that's that, why i got you, know. you here that's right her. so right. so she'd have to sing something else all right well good did you uh do halloween um this past whatever it was we did and it snowed yeah oh that's a that's an eye-opener here oh. is, nobody I, wants to hear about that i felt bad for the kids Apparently, you weren't accompanying them. <laughs> no, I I was distributing the candy. I didn't have to go out and do the runaround this year, but it was equally cold standing still. Yeah, but it was. All right. Well, let's get back to some homeowners association uh, conversation. I guess to say, um, as I mentioned, being on the board, I got to see a lot of different things and a lot of different complaints and things like that. But I also learned a lot too. Um, probably. Things, you know, I mentioned before I had to sign my name on a tax return and I didn't know why that is, is because of apparently the Homeowners Association owns the common areas. Is that correct? Who owns, when I say the association, that means everybody owns a piece of it. Is that right? Yeah. So in a condominium association, the common elements, so the land, the building exteriors, all that kind of stuff is owned by all of the owners together is what's called tenants in common which means that each condominium owner gets a percentage of everything. Every condo owner owns maybe 1% of every blade of grass and every drop of water in the pool and piece of asphalt on the shingle, and, and that's theirs. It doesn't have a separate parcel number with the county. So the value of your condominium unit actually also includes your proportional value of the common elements. In an HOA, it's a, it works a little bit differently. In an HOA, the association actually owns the land. So there's a permanent parcel par number and they might pay some property taxes should be minimal. Now you had to fill out a tax return, not because of the physical property, but because the association's also, as we mentioned before, a, a nonprofit. And so you have income as an association that could be subject to some federal income tax. So every association has to file an income tax return every year. Again, those are one of the things you learn by being on and you just take for granted when you live there and things like that. So, um, there's always things that come up when um, my subdivision is 30, 35 years old, and there's things that are in the covenants and deeds and things like that that nobody would ever dream of during that time, and things evolved into um, things that are not in there. Um, solar panels, for example, there's rooftops. Um, they were prohibited in one thing, and the state said they're not prohibited there. What takes precedence over when you've got conflicting laws and conflicting things like that are in one regards they're legal here, but they're not legal here? What always takes precedence? Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it depends. I know. Yeah. That solar panel one's an interesting one. And that really came up last year when the, the laws changed as it relates to solar panels. And the way, for example, that that works is, is the state law for HOAs for solar panels says that associations, boards like architectural control committees cannot prohibit somebody from installing a solar panel unless there is a provision in that declaration that I talked about, the covenants or restrictions that you mentioned, that specifically says no solar panels. So we still can restrict solar panels. We can say they're banned in certain instances if that provision is in there. But an architectural control committee just can't say that. So an architectural control committee might only have the authority now to say, here's where you can put your solar panel or here's what it has to look like. Here's how it has to be mounted. Those type of the legal term is time, place, and manner type of restrictions as to how solar panels can can be mounted. So depending on the law and depending on the provision, the way that those two things interact with each other can very much depend, unfortunately. Once something is done, we'll give an example um, in our subdivision, somebody put on a metal roof. Um, I don't think it went through the architectural review because it's blue. Um, and it just sticks out there. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah, they've already put it out. <laughs> I mean, they, you know, they've got a vendor sign in the yard, very proud of it. And I, I can't imagine people going by there thinking, hey, that's pretty cool kind of thing. But what is the recourse of an association 
common sense wise, um, I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but once something is already done without permission, what is the recourse that makes sense or tell me when that, you know, I'm sure that comes up a lot. The ultimate remedy is an extreme one. Yeah. And that is at the end of the day, if it was required to get approval and didn't, and it wouldn't have otherwise complied, then ultimately the association has the ability to go in and say, you've got to take that roof down, even though you just put it in and put up another one that actually does comply. Now, oftentimes people don't just voluntarily do that. So it yeah. usually requires a process and a court order. But is that one of the remedies that we have? Yes. Uh, but again, how often does that happen? Um, you know, one of the things that seem to have evolved is colors of houses. Um, there's a lot of deed restrictions that never address that. And now we're getting very, um, I don't know if I'm trying to f figure out a nice way to say we're getting a lot of different colors of houses that yeah. uh, people may not have the same opinion over. And at the end of the day, I don't know if it helps the value of the neighborhood or not when you see the purple house or the polka dots here and there. Um, you know, if you can kind of address some of those awkward situations where it's kind of subjective as to who says this isn't OK. Yeah. Don't give me that stare. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, at the end of the day, who says it? The neighbors do. Yep. Because, again, going back to how do these things work, the owners elect the government, if you will, right? That board are people who live in the community. So they're supposed to be the reasonable representatives of what does the community think is okay. So when they're making the architectural decisions of is this shade of white okay or not, they're doing so with their hat on of we live here too. And so we all have to try to figure out a way to coexist. And so that's the first level of defense. The people who are deciding is not somebody who lives far away or anything of that nature. It's people who are invested in this community making these decisions. And if they wanted to make changes to the documents uh, after the fact, what is the process as, generally how that has to happen? Sometimes governing documents will have very specific and restrictive provisions in them. For example, we have some communities that it says in there, every house has to be white. So the board might have some discretion or some latitude of what shade of white, because these paint companies have 96 shades of white for some reason today, not just white, but I digress. If they wanted to say, you know, something besides white's okay, we're going to permit something radical like beige. That's when they would need to go and get a vote of the owners to amend those initial restrictions. It depends on the documents, but in most instances, it requires a super majority of all of the owners to approve that. Going back to these things are like the contract everybody agrees to when they move in. So everybody moved in with the premise of our houses are white. Like, yeah. So that's one of the foundational things we bought into. If we're going to allow these radicals to paint their house beige, that's something that we need to get a super majority approval for in most circumstances. I'm going to go on a little different thing, but there's one real difficult one I want to get into. But one of the things I had to learn, like I said, is I didn't know the difference between different types of budgets. Hmm. Uh, there's an operating budget and a reserve budget. And a lot of people don't understand what reserve budgets are and how they commingle. Can you kind of explain the differences and the need for them? Our operating expenses are the things that we deal with in our everyday life that we pay for, you know, utilities, insurance costs, taxes, professional fees, landscaping, all of those types of things go into our operating budget. When you think about the capital budget, a better way to think about that is just our savings account. Just like we all maybe in our homes think at some point I'm going to need a new furnace or at some point I'm going to need a new roof. And you try to save up money for those things. So that way, when you have those big ticket items, you have enough money to pay for them. So, too, is it in a community association. You look at all of the capital items and try to put money away and save. So that way, when they do need their major repair or replacement, the association has enough money to actually be able to do it. There's a thing that was new to me at the time. It was called a reserve study. And I think the reserve study kind of tried to figure out what those future expenses might be. And it seems that the biggest uh, falling down I see of a lot of associations, they don't have enough money for the reserves to things that may be unexpected. The big thing is always roofs, 
uh, sometimes there's a storm that insurance doesn't pay for, something like that, then they get an assessment, and people are never happy about that. Is there ways that people can keep an eye on these things or prepare for them better than, you know, I talked about the reserve study. Are those required even? Legally, no, but practically, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would tell them they can't afford not to. Just like when you're consulting with purchasers of property, you tell them you really need to get a home inspection at this place because if they need a new furnace or a new roof in a few years, that could very well impact if they can afford it or the price they're willing to pay. The same thing is true in a reserve study. The reserve study is almost like the home inspection for all the common elements. When you buy into that condo or you buy into that HOA, you get a portion of that. And so it's a really important tool, not just for the board to know for planning purposes, but for the entire ownership to know, here's what it's going to cost to live here over a 10, 20 or 30 year period. One of the requirements in our real estate contracts now is that it wasn't uh, five years ago was that we get uh, copies of the financials. The problem is, is most of us don't know how to read those things or know what that actually means when you see an operating budget or reserve or things like that. Uh, there's some of them that actually, if you go into the subdivision, you have to pay into the reserve account at the beginning. Um, it's a one-time fee, but that gets you up to date as to certain things. And again, the biggest screw-ups or the biggest um, uh, red lights I see when I go into some of these, I look at some of these reserves and I look at, it's a 30-year-old building on a condo or something like that, and I only see you know X amount and to try to prepare a buyer for that when they're all googly-eyed over, hey, I love this condo, uh, it's just a bit of a challenge to do so. Um, how often do you see where assessments are needed because of the shortages of these things? We've really tried to been educating our clients for a long time to and avoid And they're doing that. much better. Yeah, they're doing much better. And certainly there's been things that have happened uh, both locally and nationally that have really advanced this conversation on reserves and really made the requirement even stronger that people need to do it and associations need to do it. But it is, I would say, the super majority of at least our communities, I think, are, are funding their reserves to hopefully avoid that necessity of a special assessment. Well, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit more when we come back. Um, and I do want to get into the stickiest subject that it always came up with us. But uh before we uh, go to break, I do want to remind you, if you want to learn a little bit more about uh, the Paul George Group, go to my website. Um, the easier one to remember is Paul George, or excuse me, it's, well, halfthebeatles.com. Um, Paul George is half the Beatles, but the other one is the paulgeorgegroup.com. They're both the same website, but if you want to learn a little bit about buying and selling and kind of my new listings, take a look. We'll be right back. Navigating the complexities of the current real estate market can be a daunting task. Fortunately, you have a trusted ally, the Paul George Group of Keller Williams Greater Columbus Realty. From the moment you start your journey, the Paul George Group with over 30 years of experience will be right beside you, guiding you through every step of the process, whether it's finding the perfect home or building, skillfully negotiating on your behalf, working with lenders, managing inspections, or handling title matters, their expertise in ensures your best interests are always at heart. Don't hesitate to take the first step towards your real estate goals. Reach out to the Paul George Group for a no-obligation consultation. Call 614-570-2853. That's 614-570-2853. Or email paul at paulgeorgerealestate.com. When it comes to making informed decisions in the real estate world, trust the Paul George Group to lead the way. Visit the Paul George Real Estate Group at paulgeorgerealestate.com. That's paulgeorgerealestate.com. Now back to your host, Paul George. Welcome back to the Paul George Real Estate Show. Again, I'm your host, Paul George. I am with Jeff Kamen of Kamen Cusimano, um, attorneys that represent uh, homeowners associations. And I think you do that exclus exclusively. Is that correct? That's true. That's it. So if you got a parking ticket or something like that, don't come to Jeff. Um, before we get into our final segment, I do like to give a tip of the week and as it pertains to real estate. And this one's kind of very simple and kind of common sense. The weather is changing. 
Um, there's some certain things you can do to keep your house in good order. Uh, very simple things that you may want to do. Um, when the weather turns cold, you know, a lot of things change. Uh, when I say change, things start freezing and thawing and things like that. But there's also some other common sense items you can do that you're going to get reminded of with the uh, daylight savings times and things like that. Um, one of the things, of course, is to take a look at your um, uh, carbon monoxide detectors and your smoke detectors and change the batteries. Uh, it's that time of year. It's just might as well do it now so you don't have to get up at 3 in the morning when it starts beeping. Um, the other thing you may not know about is that if your smoke detector starting to turn yellow, they're manufactured to, when they start turning yellow, say it's time to get a new one. They last about 10 years. Most of them do. But uh, take a look at that and change those out. Um, clean out your gutters. Uh, again, water is a bad thing. And if water gets stuck in your gutters, eventually they're going to overflow and get towards the foundation of your house, and that's never a good thing. Um, and there's a million things, but one last thing that's probably the easiest thing you can do is to, if you got your hoses outside, take them off to your spigot because uh, those can freeze up and um, cause some damage uh, on your spigot that ends up going down in your basement or so. So. I just want to give you that heads up a little bit, and uh, we're back here with Jeff Kamen and talking about some fun HOA stuff. Um, one of the questions that is always hard to answer because you don't want to offend anybody, um, we have in our regulations, and most of them do, we talk about political signs or religious things and things like that that people put out that might be offensive to some other people and or they leave them up too long. Um how do you handle, um, like right now we're in the um, we're in the election season, and you know, I think it's fine right now, but uh, you're going to get very opposing views of certain things, and somebody may complain, "Hey, their sign's been up too long," or something like that. There's no good answer for this, but tell me how you guys can handle it if you do get enough complaints. I'm sure it's complaint driven, but how do you handle something like that? Well, it's the gamut based on the community. I mean, some communities are very strict about signs of any type. If you move into a condominium association, you almost can never even put up a, even a political sign at election season. And that's one of the expectations that people have when they move in. Like, I don't want to see all these <laughs> terrible signs. And so that's why they go there. And so it's a lot easier in that circumstance if somebody puts up that one sign that we could tell them you got to take that down and, and go through the process if they don't. After that, it just kind of depends on the community then and what to what degree are there restrictions. In almost every circumstances, we draw the line of profanity, right? So we're not going to have like obscene or profane type things on signs. But if signs are okay, then it is a question of how many, how big do they need to be, all of those types of things. Well, and that's one of the challenges as because I got this when I served a little bit, thinking that I was on the opposite side of what their sign was promoting whether it's a candidate, whether it's an issue or whether it's something like that. And, you know, when somebody talks about these national free speech items and things like that, I'm like, okay, it, I don't want to get involved in this. So we'll just kind of let it go. But if you get enough people complaining, you know, how about Christmas lights? I'll give you an easy one. Um, you know, they still have them up in March, you know, and they're still lighting them up at night. And they say, well, that's part of what we do. We just like them there. Um, how do you handle those yeah, I don't want to really handle it kind of things. And I'm sure most of it, like I said, is complaint driven. That's what happens with us. Um, you know, it, you know, it finally gets to a point where somebody says something, then, okay, we got to address it. It's for sure complaint driven in almost every community, right? I mean, most communities are not going out looking for violations and taking action. They're taking action when they're notified of them. And a lot of communities like the one you live in is very big. There's no way that a single person or even a group of people are going to be able to see every home all the time to know is whatever everybody's doing. Is that okay all the time? If we do get a complaint, then you review the complaint and figure out what is the severity of the violation, right? Is it something that we need to take action on immediately? Is it something that might be lower priority that we have to devote our resources elsewhere? 
if it's then something that we want to go after, then there's steps to that, too. And usually it's just a friendly neighborhood. Hey, here's our rules. Maybe you didn't know type of a thing to start off with. And then it goes from there to uh, sending more like demand letters and saying, you got to take this out. Sometimes it's levying what are called enforcement assessments or fines against people if they're not doing it. And sometimes it's even getting the lawyers involved, unfortunately, and taking legal action. Yeah, and there's – it's just, again, one of those because nobody wants to be a neighbor that doesn't get along with another neighbor, but you get to a breaking point at certain things. Um, I do want to ask you, I guess – I don't know if this is a fun question or not. But what's the worst abuse you've seen a homeowners association board do? Oh, he's thinking. Sometimes people, um, when they get elected to things – don't necessarily appreciate all of the power and influence that they have, even if it's just a small community neighborhood. And sometimes they take that perhaps a little bit too seriously. And it comes across as not as well-intentioned as it it's desired to be. And so I'm lawyering around. I was just going to say, you're being politically correct. You're being very correct. Yeah, Yeah, sorry about that. Because I know you represent a hundred different communities. Like, which one is it? That's what I want to know. But you don't have to say Everybody feels passionately. Yeah. Right. And that's the thing that we see all the time is people feel super passionately about their issue. And so they want to they want to go after it. And sometimes they're more aggressive about it than everybody else would be. Well, as always, I always run out of time because I got a million more questions for you. But, Jeff, if people are on an association or have some questions for your firm, how do they get a hold of you guys? Uh, they can check out our website, which is OhioCondoLaw.com or OhioHOALaw.com. And there's a tremendous amount of resources and information available. Yeah, and I, I can't tell you how many articles I pulled up from your firm. Half of them you wrote, I think it was. But uh, I'm sorry. I appreciate you being here. And I think I'm going to have to have you on again sometime. But again, thanks for being here. And we'll see you guys next week. This has been the Paul George Real Estate Show with your host, Paul George. Sponsored by the Paul George Real Estate Group. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers, and not necessarily those of Salem Media Group, staff, management, or advertisers. Tune in next week for an all-new episode of the Paul George Real Estate Show. And follow Paul online at paulgeorgerealestate.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.